0: Several years ago I was out knocking doors, visiting in a neighborhood called Royal Estates, and I came across a a very kind lady who uh, welcomed me and one of my daughters inside and I was immediately uh, noticing that she was a collector and it was hard not to notice because in every room of her house that I could see She just had this abundance of the theme of angels. I mean, she had ceramic angels. She had uh, stuffed angels. She had pictures of angels. She was into angels, okay? And so as we just began to talk, uh, I thought, boy, this will be an easy one for me to segue into the gospel with her on this. And so I began to talk to her about her interest, you know, which she was all too happy to un- unload all her uh, treasures of how she came by different ones and the value of some of them and things like that. But like, you know, I remember asking her, why, why the fascination with angels? And of course, you know, I, I restrained myself because a lot of the way angels are depicted is very uh, theologically warped, uh, biblically incorrect based on what the scripture tells us about angels. Um, I'm not sure there's any basis for seeing angels like these little childlike cherubs that are often uh, sometimes uh, pictured for us. Uh, most of your your angels are uh, in in the more of a even though they're no gender so to speak, they're always described in a more masculine sense in the Bible. Some of them are warlike, like Michael, the archangel. Uh, but there's definitely a sense of power and authority with these angels but one thing I I remember pointing out to her was you know if you could have a conversation with an angel today you know what do you what do you imagine that uh, he might say to you about your relationship with God you know and that really caught her off guard and it really opened up a door of conversation one thing I said to her I said you know Uh, God created angels, and he created them gloriously, and even what we can see in the Bible as they're described, uh, we understand that that God created them in a magnificent way, and so there ought to be an appreciation, but I think any angel in the service of God would tell you that they don't want to be the focus of admiration and adoration because they're there to serve. That's what we're told in the Bible. They're ministering spirits sent forth to minister. And by and large, messen- uh, the angels are, are messengers that carry a message. They carry words from heaven above, from God the Father, to us on earth. At least we see that in the Old, Old Testament and the New Testament before the canonization of Scripture. And, and yet, the idea of being an angel isn't necessarily limited just to these spirit beings of heaven. For instance, in Revelation chapter two and verse three, you have the seven churches that John uh, writes about, and at the beginning of addressing the the each of these churches, it says an unto the angel of the church of right, and then it gives the location, whether it be Philadelphia, or Smyrna, or Laodicea, or wherever it was. It would always address it that way, and many commentators believe that rather than thinking of that as an angel that is a spirit being, that it is an angel in the sense of the one who is responsible for delivering the message to the local congregation. So therefore, this was just a more of a poetical way of referring to the pastor of that local congregation. John send this message to the shepherd, to the angel of that congregation. And if you think about it, Though we're not angelic creatures, and truthfully, many of us are far from being angels, (laughs) the way that people talk about that. We know we have our flaws and uh, our shortcomings, but we are all to be angels in the sense that we're message bearers, that we've been called upon to carry the message of the good news to others. When it comes to the message, it's not just a matter of, hey, here's how to be saved. Here's the gospel. But even as it was uh, talked about in the Great Commission, when, when God, Jesus told his disciples to go, therefore, into all the world, part of that is teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. That teaching, it was in the present tense, it had ongoing... Uh, significance to it, not just something you do once and then you check it off your list with that person and go your merry way. But it's the idea of mentoring people spiritually. It's the idea of discipling them. It's the matter. It's the idea that they continue to need to hear the word of God spoken into their life. And who of us doesn't need that in our lives? So the Great Commission isn't just about getting people saved. It's about seeing them come to know the Lord as their Savior, but it's the idea that God's called us all to be preparers of others, ambassadors. And so as we look at this passage of Scripture in Luke 1, we want to talk about the message to the preparers. Now, in our story, we meet a man by the name of Zacharias. He was best known for being the father of John the Baptist. In fact, if we were to have a little bible trivia pursuit game or something like that and someone were to ask you know what was the name of the father of john the baptist if you hadn't freshly read this passage some of us might have a hard time coming up with it right on the spot like that john the baptist well known very well known very key figure in scripture uh, he, he certainly came onto the scene in a, a blaze didn't he uh, but then to think you know no You know, who was your your dad? You know? And yet he played a very key role, as we see. A lot of scripture is given to us here about the angel coming and bestowing on him and Elizabeth the role of preparing the preparer, because John the Baptist's role was to be a preparer, he was preparing the way of the Lord. And so Zacharias was being told, you're going to prepare the way of the preparer of the Lord in this way. So immediately you might think, well, this is a message to parents. This is a message to moms and dads, because Zacharias was a, was a, a father. And that, that would be, this would also be a great topic for like a Father's Day, we might think. But as I already mentioned, it isn't just biological parents that are called to nurture people in their faith. We're all called to be spiritual dads. We're all called to be spiritual moms. We're all called to be spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and as such, there is a, a role where uh, we need to sense the responsibility and the privilege of being able to take what God has given to us and is giving to us through his word and therefore instilling it in a meaningful and intentional way into those around us that God has placed. And so we're going to look at the key elements today that are vital in the lives of those who you and I are called to prepare. What are some of these key elements vital in the lives of those I am preparing? Well, first of all, we need to understand that Our joy begins with our character. Joy begins with character. And this needs to be really uh, considered because the world gets it wrong. Uh, Without saying it necessarily this way, uh, we are taught in the world that joy comes from acquiring. Joy comes from adjustments. You know, in other words, if, if I can acquire certain things, then life will be good. If I can change certain things about life, life will be good. But joy really begins from within, with not what is happening to us, but the kind of people we actually are. And therefore, we are not subject to our circumstances when it comes to our joy. And I see in the life of Zacharias certain things that are mentioned about him that the Bible highlights that I think the Lord would have us to take note of. For instance, he was a godly man. Do, do, do I want to be godly? Do you want to be godly? Is that a quality that we aspire for? Is that a uh, concern as we go before the Lord in our prayer life, as we go throughout the day? In verse 6 of this passage, it basically says this about him at the end of the verse, that he was what? blameless now let's be careful to define that correctly in its context do you think that means that Zacharias had reached sinless perfection in his life no not at all uh, you know we understand that he still had a a fleshly nature and that even the very thought of wickedness is sin. I mean, how can you come to the place in your life where you you don't even entertain certain thoughts inappropriately in your life, even if you can clean up your act outwardly, uh, to really come to the place where you feel like you have a grasp on your innermost being that you never misstep even in your attitude is something that none of us will ever acquire this side of glory so what does it mean when it says he's he's blameless what's the idea that he is irreproachable that there's nothing that could be said of him that would disqualify him from his role of service for the lord in his life by the way this is also a requirement of pastors and you know if pastors were required to be sinlessly perfect you know there'd be a lot of of empty pulpits, wouldn't there? Okay, because that's a really an impossibility of a bar to obtain. But there ought to be an expectation that no one can bring a a valid reproach against the integrity, against the character of an individual in that particular role. Uh, they understood. Zacharias and his wife understood that not only was important to obey the specifics of the law when it came to the commandments. And it mentions that in verse 6, right? He says that they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments. In other words, we, we want to read our Bibles. We want to know what God's expectations are of us. And so, therefore, that we can please him. That's a wonderful and appropriate demeanor and disposition to have. But that may encompass outward, externals. But it goes on to talk about the spirit of the law because it talks about the, the ordinances of the Lord. In other words, uh, what is the heart behind these things? What has God ordained? What is his reason for these things? In Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, uh, Jesus is going on in the Sermon on the Mount to do what we sometimes refer to as the intensifying of the law. Well, he wasn't really intensifying the law. He was simply illuminating that the law, by its very nature, was more intense than many people were willing to admit. But if they were really a follower of God, they would understand. You know, if God's telling me, for instance, I ought not to commit adultery then the spirit of that is I need to be faithful to my spouse, right? I mean, it just kind of makes common sense. So therefore, it's not just that I don't find myself in a bed with someone other than my spouse and violating my marital vows in that way, but it really comes down to my heart. It comes down to the fact that, look, look, I took a vow before God, a commitment, that, that I belong to this person, that person belonged to me. So for me to stray in what I have an affinity for and what I begin to sort of even play out in my mind, that's, that's really just as much of a problem as if I did the act myself. And that's what Jesus was getting at when he said that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And God is interested in the heart, isn't he, folks? He's not just interested in keeping the outside of the cup clean. Uh, he wants to make sure that, the, that we're focused on the, the inside of the cup. That was the flaw of the Pharisees. Uh, hey, as long as everybody perceives that I'm righteous and I've got my act together, it's really all I care about. But we, how, how shallow is that? How short-sighted is that? We ought to say, but, but God's the one that looks on the inner being. So I need to be mostly concerned about my true godliness. In John 14, 15, Jesus reminded his disciples, if you love me, keep my commandments. You know, it'd be easy for them to say, as, as Peter did, Lord, I love you. Lord, you know I love you. But the key of being able to make your words meaningful is to back it up with actions. Actions, in the case of love, need to have standing of loyalty. There really is no true love if there isn't a loyalty that doesn't go along with it. Going back to marriage, you know, why should a spouse think that their spouse means anything when they say, Oh, but... But, sweetheart, I do love you if there's been a breach in loyalty or there continues to be a breach in loyalty. If you really loved me, you would remain true and faithful to me. You'd care about my desires. You'd care about my concerns. You'd care about the things that grieve my heart. You'd care about the betterment of me. And right, that person would be in saying those things. Well, in the same way, if we want to claim, Lord, I love you. God, I love you. We need to do more than just spout it with our mouths, don't we? We need to make sure that it's backed up by our lifestyle, that we are loyal to Him. If you and I are missing joy in our lives, it begins with giving careful heed to all of God's commands. We can't say, you know, Lord, I love you, and I'm going to give attention and heed to what you have demonstrated is your heart as I read the Bible, except for this area. No, we can't make exclusions. We can't make exceptions because it all represents the concerns of our Lord. Imagine as a parent here on earth and having a disobedient child say, Daddy, I love you. After you've just told them to do something and they, have, they haven't they have just forgotten to do something. We understand how that happens. But there's been a disregard of what Daddy just said to do. And the child said, Daddy, I love you. Well, you know, most dads would probably turn around and say something like this. Well, you know, if you really loved me, you would what? You would obey. You would do what I ask. You can't say, I love you. And then not want to submit, not want to yield to me as your earthly father. And so when it talks about being blameless, we realize that preparers, if we're going to be involved in the ministry of preparing other people to follow the Lord, that we need to have integrity ourselves. It's hard to shape others towards godliness if you and I are not being shaped ourselves into godliness. Uh, People don't want to hear, you know, the ideas. do as I say, not as I do. That will turn people off. And honestly, if we admit it, it would turn us off. We would say, I, I don't want to be taught. I don't want to be shaped by someone who can't demonstrate that it's worthy and valuable in your own life. So godliness. Secondly, we ought to want to be faithful. We see that in verses 8 through 9 in the life of Zechariah. Here he was, a priest. And by the way, it mentions that even his wife, the woman that he married, was in the Aaronic priestly line. And so John the Baptist is going to come from a a dual uh, priestly line here. And Zechariah continued with the routine of his life. He didn't abandon what God had given to him. He didn't choose this. He, he was born into the tribe that made him this vocation, didn't he? You got to believe that there had to be some children growing up. And it's like, but I don't want to be a priest. I don't want to serve in the temple. I don't want to spend the rest of my la- days not having personal property myself, but just, you know, living in one of these specified cities and, you know, tending the 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 farms and the farmland and living on the 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 gifts the benevolent spirit of people that come in i i want to be able to go out and make money and there probably were some children hypothetically speaking that may have at least struggled with that and maybe even departed from uh, their vocation that god had appointed for them in that way but Zechariah was not one of them whatever his struggles might have been early on in his life we find that he's here being faithful he was obedient to what god's will had been revealed to him in his own life consider the irony we have a tendency to become so consumed sometimes with the anticipation for god to reveal his will to us that we often neglect other areas of obedience that he has already shown us it's not uncommon for people uh, over the years to come to me and say pastor yeah, how can I find out God's will for my life? How can I discover God's will for my life? So we'll sit down and we'll chat and, you know, usually what, what they're after is finding out some very specific niche about their life. It might be a young person trying to figure out their future uh, career path, which is a wonderful thing to do. It might be a decision about a, entering into a relationship with another person, either marriage or maybe a, a business partnership, any number of things like this. And so it's almost like they, they want a, a fax from heaven or an email from heaven saying, do this, or this is what I would have you to do in this matter. And of course, I realize God doesn't speak in that kind of fashion to us on, on those things, although I do believe that God does ordain circumstances and often innately lead us through the Spirit of God, and He puts wise counselors into our path. But primarily, He gives to us the precepts of His Word that gives us guidance on how to make wise choices in our life, so that when it comes to those very specific questions, we can know the answer. But hopefully, we're in much prayer. We're, we're seeking up God, give me direction about this. We've had a lot of missionaries come through the doors here and speak. And, you know, one of the questions is, how did you know that God was calling you to that field? You know, that you would go to, you know, like Brother Hitz, the Inuit people up on the Baffin Island, way in the upper reaches of Canada. It's like, you know, I doubt that, you know, one day he woke up as a 12 year old boy and it's like, you know, I want to go be a missionary to Eskimos, you know, Uh, which would have been how he would have thought of it back then, you know. But instead, it was this very involved, but yet wonderful rolling out of God's will that involved so many things. But as they prayed, as missionaries prayed for God's guidance, what would have happened if they said, God, I want you to show me where you what field would you have me to go to? However, you keep you keep pounding on the door of my heart about making things right with this cousin of mine that we got into a little bit of a disagreement a few years ago. And he's really the one that's been wrong all this time. And yet I feel like you're nudging me to go to him and get things resolved. But, you know, you need to be talking to him, not me. And so therefore there's this resistance. Well, you know, if if we shut out God in that way, if we quench his spirit and what he's leading us to do. We're not demonstrating love and godliness there, but we're definitely not demonstrating faithfulness either. We need to say, Lord, I'm going to I'm going to leave my my sacrifice at the altar, so to speak. Go and take care of what I know needs to be done. And then I'm going to come back and continue down the path and see where you'll lead me in this matter that right now seems a bit obscure. You know, if we're not careful, our prayer life can be invaded by covetousness. I don't know about you, but sometimes I have stopped myself in, in my own personal quiet time in prayer, and I thought, just listen to yourself, right? I mean, just, listen, you know, there's just been a lot of too much Lord, please give, Lord, this, Lord, that, you know, and it's all uh, acquiring or fixing or something like that. And just I found, you know, great comfort in adjusting my prayer life sometimes of just focusing on God. Let me just rejoice in who you are. And as I read through this psalm, let me just rejoice in the fact that you're a just God, uh, that you're a God that reaches down to humanity in are long-suffering and merciful and, and just going through those things and just praying back to God, my praise to Him, and not really getting caught up in asking Him. Now, obviously, even in the Lord's Prayer, we're commanded that part of our prayer life should include asking for things. You know, give us this day our daily bread. We understand that. But we can adopt a spirit, a hankering, if you would, that sometimes becomes very improper and imbalances the way we come before our God. Sometimes I can a- avoid this by, by guarding from indolence in other areas while waiting for God to reveal His will for me. In other words, like, well, you know, I'm, I'm just waiting for God to answer this prayer, and so I become idle. I become apathetic in some other areas of my life because I'm waiting for this to happen. No. What I ought to be doing is continue to be faithful in those areas that I have around me right now. And then God will answer that prayer in his perfect timing. See, God uses faithfulness as a test to anticipate reliability on a greater scale. Remember in Luke chapter 16 and verse 10, he's talking about the the idea of what he entrusted into the hands of these individuals. And then he makes this statement in clarifying the point of the parable. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. So why should we expect God to give us greater illumination in his will if we haven't even been obeying what he's clearly shown us right out of the pages of his word so far. In other words, are we yielded in the area of our cheerful giving before the Lord? Are we giving by grace? Are we following the guidelines of Scripture in that regard? Are we saying, you know, Lord, it, you know, it says here that I need to give as I have purposed in my heart, and I realize as I'm reading this, That there's not been much purposing. I just sort of, you know, do it right on the spur of the moment, whatever, you know. But it says I need to purpose in my heart. There needs to be a little bit of planning. There needs to be some prayerful planning here. And it ought to be by grace. And it ought to not be grudging. And you've given me all these guidelines. And I realize that I need to come back to what you've already revealed to me. To make sure I'm faithful in these least areas before I can ever expect you to give me more responsibility and greater clarity. See, Zechariah was given a duty in the temple probably twice a year, according to some commentators. The span of days that that represented is a little uncertain. Going all the way back to David, there had become such a population of priests and Levites that... Um, They needed to rotate and take turns. Praise the Lord for that, you know. So it came his his time, his lot. And there's no telling what he had done the last time. There's no telling what he had done the day before. But in particular, his responsibility here was to be in charge of the, the altar of incense. He gets to go into the holy place. He gets to go in through that first veil, if you would. And, and there uh, before him, he would see the altar of incense. And, and there to the side, on one side, the lampstand and the table of showbread. And, and then he would see beyond that, that wonderful tapestry in Herod's temple that eventually would be rent in twain at the crucifixion of Christ. And knowing just beyond that was the, the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat what a privilege not everybody got to be where he was but you know it wasn't all altar of incense days for him the priest would sometimes be uh, subjected to just cleaning out the burnt the the altar of burnt offerings out at the front where they would bring the oxen and you know they would have to take and remove the the dead embers and the ash from the burned up carcasses and the remains and maybe washing down the floors after the 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 slaying of the animal sacrifices and the blood was there and the the stench and the insects it wasn't all glorious days like being able to enter into the holy place and and tend to the altar of incense Zechariah didn't call out and think well I'll just let someone else take my turn there's plenty of priests and there were But he said, no, this is what God's called me to do. This is my allotment. I'm going to be faithful in it. You know, we all appreciate faithful servants of God around us, don't we? We're thankful that there are reliable, chosen individuals that God has placed in our church and in our life that minister. And sometimes those roles may not seem as glamorous as others, but they're all needed. And we know that it is important for a, a steward to be found faithful, right? That's what the Lord looks for: faithfulness. When it comes to being a messenger, Proverbs 13:17 says, "A wicked messenger falleth into mischief, but a faithful ambassador is health." In other words, what would happen if a messenger was carrying a key piece of correspondence? And it was to the front of a battle lines, and it was for a a specific troop movement. It might make the difference of soldiers surviving or not surviving based on the reliability of that one messenger. You know, there's been great damage to the the cause of the local churches over the years because sometimes messengers have been unfaithful. Messengers, Messengers have not taken seriously the role that I've been trusted into my hands, the very oracles of God. I need to labor more abundantly. I need to make sure that I am not having men's persons in admiration. I need to make sure that I am giving out, thus saith the Lord, as God would have me to. So there needs to be a faithfulness. But secondly, the joy of being a messenger results from the calling. Beginning at verse 13 here. Here is the angel speaking specifically to Zechariah. Here's the interaction. And we see the specific call that we were working towards, and now we're here. And what do we know about this calling? Well, through it, we can see that I want him to be significant to the Lord as a spirit that is in the heart of someone who is a preparer. You're looking at your protege, you're looking at your disciplee. you're looking as a father at your children, you're looking at the people in your church as a shepherd, you're looking at that new convert as a older spiritual advisor that's been in the Lord for many, many years and now you're discipling them. And hopefully inside of you there's a spirit of saying, you know, I want them to find God's will and do it. Not for their own personal fame, not that they'll have a legacy, but just that they will be significant to the Lord's work. Notice really in verse 15 here, it says, For he, the angel says to Zacharias, talking about John the Baptist, shall be what? Great. Great. Great in the sight of the Lord. And praise God for that motivation. He doesn't say he will be great in the eyes of his countrymen, does he? Now, there are many people that followed after John the Baptist. To use today's terminology, he had his groupies, so to speak. Wherever he went, you know, they would go. And they just thought, this is great. Well, you know, when you've had it up to here with Roman occupation and you have someone that's bold enough to speak out, you appreciate someone that's not putting their finger in the wind saying, oh, you know, should I say this or shouldn't I say this? And, you know, And there's been a lot of people in modern days that have appreciated an individual who would speak out unapologetically. Sometimes you think, well, you know, could curb that a little bit with a little bit of suave or a little bit of discernment, but at the very least... You know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that they're speaking the truth. They're giving to us the unvarnished truth in this way. And John the Baptist was going to be that guy. You know, repent! Yeah, I mean, he would come out and say, for the kingdom of the Lord is at hand. So he was going to be great in his countrymen's eyes, yes, but more importantly, in the sight of the Lord. Luke 7, says, for I say unto you among, and this is Jesus speaking here about John the Baptist, for I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. Wow. Can you imagine being praised by our Savior in such a fashion? But then Jesus goes on to add this right after that. But he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. It's not about the fact that you've gained great uh, fame among your fellow believers. Uh, It's not that you've been an Elijah or a Moses. You know, it's the, the lesser known individual who's just out there being very faithful, loving God's people, trying to nurture them, try to prepare them. And of course, John the Baptist had one goal. He was very laser-focused, preparing the way for the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. It's very easy for us to become so diversified in our interest that we lose the the focus that we need on that which matters most in our lives. Is mediocrity acceptable? Do Do you want the best for the one that you care about hopefully you would say yes i i you know i want them to succeed i want them to excel as human parents you know what do we do we we pay for musical lessons so our children can excel in in the arts and sometimes we we go the extra mile so they can have physical activity and de- develop their their skills by taking them to sports activities and practices we we make those sacrifices we sometimes work extra jobs or sacrifice so our children can have a a christian education whether it be homeschooled or private education or or other things that we might do there's all sorts of things we understand here why because we love those that we've been put in charge of that we are supposed to shepherd in our lives so supremacy really is achieved by serving and that's what zachariah was doing he was serving the lord and john the baptist is going to be serving the lord and he became great i can think of many people in this church that resemble this to me but let me take someone outside of the ministry just so that i can be uh, a little bit more impartial about this and as i was working on this message i thought to myself my dear friend who's the camp director up at the Wilds camp in, in North Carolina, Ken Collier. And here he is, he's in, he's in charge of this large ministry. Sometimes they have hundreds and hundreds of people on the premises at the same time, sometimes multiple events happening on their property at the same time. And he, he's responsible for ultimately the inner workings of how this goes on. He's got a wonderful staff of people below him. And then I'll look over and I'll see him holding the door for people that are coming in to a meeting. I'll I'll see him hop up in the dining room to help out a waitress by going and refilling a tea pitcher. I'll see him helping the ladies during the, the rush time of everybody showing up by sitting down and beginning to help register people at the window. I've seen him down setting up chairs as it moves from an athletic activity in the gymnasium back to Uh, a seated thing he what is it's the servant's heart you know and i look at someone like that i'm like that's a great man that's a great man and you know that's that's what we need to do we need to set role models in our minds of lord help me to be significant like that significant by serving not for other people to someday stand up and pat me on the back and sing my accolades No, but so that I'll be great in your eyes. Secondly, we'll find ourselves saying of the people we're preparing, I want him to be controlled by the Lord. The angel goes on in verse 15 to talk about how there's going to be this special vow, if you would, that he's going to have upon him in this way. And it's not surprising that Dr. Luke, who is used of the Lord, to put this gospel before us, making mention under the inspiration of the Spirit how important it is to be controlled completely by the Spirit of God. Do we understand the control of the Holy Spirit? Paul tells the Ephesian Ephesian believers in Ephesians 5.18, listen, don't allow other things to control you. Don't allow other things substances or instances of things to somehow take a role of influencing you away from the absolute control and influence of the Holy Spirit. So he says this in Ephesians 5, 18, Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. You know, when you use another analogy here to get the right idea of filling, we always picture You know, or at least this is the way I grew grew up thinking when I heard about being filled with the Spirit. I kind of pictured a human body silhouetted, like just the black outline and a white middle to it. You know, nothing else. But you could tell it was a human being, just a man standing there like a stick figure, uh, but not a stick figure. You could see the white interior of him. And then it would be like, on your good days... It was like the Holy Spirit let's say he's represented by red, you know, it, you know, he's all the way up to here, you know, or up to here, you know, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, you know, and some days the Holy Spirit comes up to here and other days the Holy Spirit comes up to here, you know, and I I need to live with the Holy Spirit up to here. Then I began to realize, you know what, well, you know, the Holy Spirit's a person. You know, I don't get 50% of the Holy Spirit some days or 80% of the Holy Spirit some days or 100% of the Holy Spirit. I mean, he's always with me 100%. But by filling, what we're talking about is controlling. Am am I allowing the Holy Spirit, just, just to use the inebriation analogy, rather than allowing myself to take in a substance that will then control me so that I lose control of my faculties, rather than doing anything like that, Let me be so yielded to the Spirit's control so that I am led by God in that way, what he would have me to do. Another example of how this idea of the word filled is the idea of controlled. We're we're in politics right now, and, you know, with the, the runoff in Georgia, I mean, everybody's looking at what's going to happen there, right? And why is that? Because if Congress is, here's the word, filled, right if congress is filled with a certain political party then congress will be what controlled right and so we understand that that's what it really is about people it's not just about oh we want to have more you know of our kind of people sitting in those chairs no we want to be there so that we can have discretion over what happens well guess what as believers, we ought to want the Holy Spirit to have discretion over what happens inside of us. So therefore, dear believer, elect every day to all the congress of your soul being under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist would lead a very minimalistic life. I mean, right? He's out there, he's just got this, you know, very peculiar looking wardrobe. He's eating very strangely, but the bottom line, he wasn't doing it to draw attention to himself. I believe it was mostly a, a minimalistic lifestyle because, you know, it's, you know, it's not so much about what I'm wearing. It's not so much about what I'm eating. It's about the message that the Lord has given me to proclaim. And I'm not saying that we all need to go out and, you know, put on animal skins and eat only locusts and wild honey like john the baptist did but i think we need to understand and appreciate the spirit of him as a messenger and what he was doing by saying you know i want to be controlled by the lord and that means i need to be careful about what else might be tempting to control me but then thirdly we'll find ourselves saying of the people that we're preparing i want him to be effective for the lord and 16 through 17, as the angel uh, goes on to finish the message to Zacharias, he's talking here about the effectiveness that is measured by changed lives. And there will be a sense. Now, we can't control, and it's not all a numbers game. We shouldn't say, well, I've been successful because of this or whatever. But notice he uses the word turn twice in these two verses there is a turning there is a revival in the spirits of people if you would people have a bent and that bent needs to be changed because our natural bent is one of our sinful fleshly nature bottom line now if you've ever worked with wood it's an interesting substance okay it's organic material and I know this isn't true in every situation, but, you know, sometimes when you get boards, you know, ideally when you get them, they're straight. I remember helping John building their house, sometimes running to lows and needing new, new two by fours or two by sixes. And I remembered learning this from when I was helping build houses when I was in college to sight to the board is what we called it. You know, you pick it up and you look down the from one end to the other And you're looking to see if it has any unnecessary, you know, inappropriate crowning to it or if it's bent to the side. OK, those you want to set to the side. Sometimes you have to set a lot to the side to get the, the ones that will work for you. But I have seen on something like this old house where they will try to take a board and bend it. Well, let me tell you, if you take a dry board and you put weight on it when it has a a bow in it for instance and then you come back to it in a couple days and you pull the weight off chances are that bow is still going to spring back but if you take that same board and you soak it and I remember watching on this home improvement show they 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 wanted to actually bend the board for an archway and so they took a straight board soaked it and then they put all these clamps on it while it was wet And let it dry out that way. Then when they took the clamps off, guess what? Lo and behold, it had that new shape to it. Why? Because it needed to be changed from its inner structure. It wasn't enough just to put the weight on the outside of it only. And You know, a lot of people try to approach ministering to people by simply putting weight on them externally. Sometimes churches even approach it that way. And there might be just a a strong, very bombastic type approach of, of preaching and sort of an imposing personality. And it might bend the people's will and spirit for a time, but guess what? When that imposing spirit and personality is removed, boing, right? But I tell you what, you soak the souls of those people in the Word of God. And then you apply good, proper exhortation of pressure in a right way. Then, as that maturity takes place, even when that pressure is removed, even when that exhortation is removed, there is a keeping. Why? Because it's been intrinsically ingrained into the very spirit of those people. This is not just what a messenger told me this is what the message of god told me and that sticks with us it's not done by our wits it's not done by amiable personality it's kind of like our mission statement says if you ever drive into church and you look at our sign we we have it there we have it on our website changing lives with the what unchanging word That's what it's about. It's not about changing lives with a really friendly congregation. It's not changing lives through uh, interesting preaching. It's not changing lives through uh, 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 important functions. No, we might have some of those things and those have a, a, a way of coming along. But the faith is what? The change takes place from the word of God being ingrained. People knowing this is what God's word is saying to me. So that's what we need to present to people. You see, effectiveness is not measured by completed lives, though. Sometimes we think, oh, I'm not being a success. What was John the Baptist's job to prepare the way of the Lord? At that point, he pointed people to Jesus and he sent them after him. It was not John's job to go to the cross. It was not John's job to speak, preach the Sermon on the Mount. He was to prepare. What was Zechariah's job? He was to prepare John the Baptist. Zechariah wasn't supposed to go out into the wilderness and preach repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and baptize people into repentance. He was to prepare someone for doing that. It's kind of like the assistant on a cooking show. His his job is to come out and put all the items out there, have it pre-measured sitting there, and that way when the celebrity cook comes out and, and, and puts it all together, you know, it's, it makes it easier for them. It help, helps the show to click, right? But if the assistant does everything right and, and the cook messes it up, well, the assistant's still done a good job. Hopefully the cook doesn't go back and say, you know, well, oh, you blew it today. No, no, I, I, I think it was you that blew it, right? Well, you know, ultimately, we're not worried about God blowing it, but we are coming back to saying, listen, God's entrusted one thing to me, and that is to be a message bearer. It's not for me to change lives. It's for me to put the word into their hands. It's for me to uh, confront them with God's truth in a loving way. We must not mistake our role with the role of the Holy Spirit. We don't go out and save people. God saves people. We're ambassadors of the truth that God uses to help bring into people's lives. Our job is to help facilitate the confrontation. So though the message revealed what they should anticipate of their son for Zechariah and Elizabeth, these are obviously, for us, qualities that we should be emulating in our own life. For we're all message bearers. And as John 13, 17 reminds us, if you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. God help us. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We do ask that you would help us to resemble the roles of those that you've called to be message bearers. Lord, Thank you for your angels that you have sent forth. But, Lord, thank you most of all for your message that we have been given into our hands. We have a more sure word of prophecy. And so, Father, may we be good and diligent stewards of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.